According to multiple reports, nonstop revival has broken out at Asbury University in Kentucky. And as far as I know, it's still taking place. Here's the backstory. At this Christian school, they have chapel once a week, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. This Wednesday, they had chapel. After chapel, there was an ongoing time of worship and confession and repentance. At the 32-hour mark, students, these students could be heard singing, we want more of you and less of us. At the 72-hour mark, the cry became, there is no one like you in the heavens or on the earth. One student put it like this, during a call of confession, at least... 100 people fell to their knees and bowed at the altar. Hands rested on shoulders, linking individual people together to represent the body of Christ truly. Cries of addiction, pride, fear, anger, and bitterness sounded, each followed by a life-changing proclamation, Christ forgives you. This is a picture from yesterday. This is a service that started at 10 in the morning on Wednesday, and as far as I know, is continuing even today. As I was reflecting on all that, I'm so humbled that many of our students and young adults have been praying for revival. Here's why, because historically, revival has spontaneously broken out among young people. No planning, no campaigns, no big-name speakers, just young people getting serious about the Savior, getting serious about their own sin, and getting serious about the salvation of their friends. I watched an interview this morning of two students who've been there and continuing to be involved. The guy said, the person doing the interview, one of the professors, was asking these students about their response, what they've been thinking as a result of all this. And the professor mentioned that the president of the university had sent out two emails to the student body and said, we're going to cancel classes. And whatever the Lord is dealing with you in your heart, take care of it. Don't rush it. And so this professor was asking this guy, student, about these emails, and the student said, I wrote it down, he said, I haven't been on my phone for eight hours. Now that's a miracle. The young woman sitting next to him said, people have been set free. So here's what I want to say about all that. 
It's time for us old people to get serious about praying for revival. See, it's easy to go, oh, wow, that's cool. How neat. You go home, look it up, and go, oh, cool. Look what the college kids are doing. Or we get skeptical. That can't, that's got to be all emotionalism. Or we're intrigued, but we think it's just happening there. No, I agree with a friend of mine who posted this. A part of me wants to join them, but even more, I want it to come here. If we want revival, it starts in our hearts, a willingness to seek hard, be real, and humble before the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, do it here. I wonder if you join me in a prayer. We've been praying at Edgewood. It's only one sentence long. It's actually a question. It is a prayer, and it's God's word. It's praying God's word back to him, Psalm 85, verse 6. Oh, that you would revive us again, that we may rejoice in you. Now, here's one reason we need revival. This past Sunday night, the Grammys celebrated Satan by showcasing decadent sensuality and devil worship, complete with flames, red lights, dancers dressed in red portraying demons, and Sam Smith wearing a red top hat with horns. The audience embraced this expression of evil by applauding loudly to the song, here's the title of the song, Unholy was performed. It was troubling to learn earlier in the day, CBS, who hosted the Grammys, tweeted this, we are ready to worship before that performance. They've since taken that tweet down. Albert Moeller summarized the show this way, the musical performance of Unholy at the Grammys was a celebration of Satan and a direct refutation of God's glory in creation. Another commentator tweeted, Satan is no longer lurking in the shadows. The days have become so evil that he is parading his presence in broad daylight. As just one example... The Satanic Temple, that's the group that started a Satan club in an elementary school in Moline one year ago. That group, the Satanic Temple, is holding a conference in April. They're calling it SatanCon. It'll be held in Boston. Here's their claim. This will be the largest Satanic gathering in history. Now... As I reflected on all that, it sure does seem that there are obvious examples of Satanism, and those examples are increasing. But most of Satan's work is much more subtle, insidious, subversive, and sinister. Well, that's what the Bible says. Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The battle's not here, what we can see. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, if you're our guest today, we're so glad that you're here. 
As we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we are going to see more covert and more overt explosions of evil. Since Satan is intensely and intentionally opposed to image bearers of God, he will do anything to attack the purposes of God. So today, we come to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see how temptation works. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read together one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. So let's pause and let's approach God's word now with reverence and with great rejoicing that we have a God who has communicated and still communicates as we read and study his word. Let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be seated. Holy Spirit, be our teacher now. Jesus, thank you that you are the victor. Lord, there's a battle going on right here in this room or wherever people are engaging online or later on the radio. So, Lord, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected, ascended Christ that, that people would engage and be able to understand and apply. Lord, that's all your work, and so we ask you to do that. Uh, Lord, help us to understand and then apply what you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We could call this passage 30 seconds that changed the world. Here's the main idea. To be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. You see, those who know about a threat are better prepared to face that threat when it comes. And because the evil one's approach has not changed much over the centuries, we're called today to be educated and equipped to handle evil. Let me take us to 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And then let's consider Ephesians uh, where we hear these words from the book of Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Since we're dealing with the devil today, I'm going to use six words that begin with the letter D to help us do battle against the designs and the schemes of Satan. Our enemy's attacks are multi-layered, They're asymmetric. They come from all different directions at the same time. And he'll do anything he can because his attacks are incessant. Our text today is a classic case study. 
study of how the tempter tempts us. One pastor suggests we should study the first temptation in the same way a general prepares for battle by analyzing the enemy and the enemy's tactics. Let me be quick to say this is no fairy tale. This is not a fable. This is actual history. Satan is real. Adam and Eve were real. Temptation is real. Sin is real. And hell is hot. And so let's look now at this process that the serpent uses first, disguise. That word now indicates these events took place sometime after the first marriage where God brought Adam and Eve together in a covenant commitment. There's no transition statement. There's no introduction to what comes next. We don't know how much time has gone by, but now we are introduced to the word now. The first thing we see is how the devil disguises himself. He speaks through a serpent. Now, the very mention of a snake makes many of us cringe, right? You kind of get kind of creeped out by that. Not everybody, but it's common. And there are several characteristics that snakes have which help us understand how Satan works today. I thought of this first. Snakes slither in quietly. Eve had no idea what was about to happen as the serpent appeared unexpectedly. She was not looking for the serpent, but the serpent was looking for her. Secondly, the skin of a snake is often camouflaged, making them difficult to see. Satan's hard to see. Snakes can see, smell, and hear their prey. As a result, it's hard to get away. Snakes are opportunistic predators. They can lie and wait for a long time. There's something about snakes that are also mesmerizing. It's like they're hard to look away from. Snakes strike quickly. Boom. And finally, their venom can be deadly. Now, that's our view of snakes today. But it's likely this serpent was not frightening to Eve. The Hebrew word for Lucifer... Uh, literally means shiny one. So I wonder if he was attractive, appealing. We know the Lord God made the serpent. You see it there? That's an important point because Satan was created. He is not co-equal with God. It's not like God and Satan are fighting and we hope God wins. Oh, no, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He will win. He has won. Now, Eve was not surprised that the serpent spoke. I don't really know all that's going on there. We're not told a lot. But my mind does go to Numbers chapter 22 when Balaam's donkey was able to talk. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast. The word crafty means clever, subtle, cunning, shrewd. As Christ's follower, 2 Corinthians 11.3 calls us to be aware of how Satan works so we are not deceived. Paul is writing these words to a church, the Corinthian church. He's writing this to Christians. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, Christian, 
will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And we're told why then how easily that happens, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. A.J. Langworthy sitting over here. It's nice you're sitting next to your parents. I think they probably like that. A.J. is our youth assistant, and this week he was telling us about how God has opened up an opportunity for him to have a gospel conversation with two guys who are involved in a cult. And as A.J. was talking, he mentioned that it's difficult to have a conversation with these two guys because they hold to some things that are true and other beliefs that are more clever in their error. You know, sometimes false religions even use the same words that we might use, even the same words the Bible uses, but gives them different meanings. Friends, be on your guard, because the devil doesn't always dress in red and wear horns. And to be forewarned of his strategy is to be forearmed. Notice the next step, doubt. The first voice we hear in this narrative opposes God and his sovereignty. Look at the next phrase. Did God actually say? One translation puts it like this. Really? Did God really say? Oh, the serpent scheme is simple. Continues today. To stir up doubt by attacking and discrediting God's word. Oh, observe how the serpent here uses the generic name for God, Elohim, instead of the powerfully personal compound name, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. That compound name is used 20 times in Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3, translated in English as Lord God. Satan doesn't call him Lord. The word actually is used sarcastically in a mocking sort of way. It's as if Satan is saying something like this, come on, did the deity, the God who's far away, did Did he really say? So here the serpent is not taking a direct approach. He's starting with a question. And his most effective work is finished when he has established a foothold of doubt in someone's mind or heart. Now, questions can be good in our quest for knowledge. If you have questions, it's good to have questions as you're searching to understand what the Bible says and what the Bible's all about. Keep asking those questions. But let me also give a caution. Sometimes questions reveal a doubt, a doubt of God's word. Many years ago, there was a pastor, a well-known pastor, He started questioning settled doctrine in his sermons and in his books. And here's what he would do. While he was preaching or writing, he would ask questions and then not provide a biblical answer. He would say things like this. We can't really know for sure, and so I want to just ask some questions. Here's one question that he was famous for. How do we know hell is real. 
And this, is the Bible true? He would invite people to have a chat, to live in the questions, live in the uncertainty when he was preaching. He'd propose questions and not provide biblical answers, and his public doubt spread like gangrene to others. It makes me think of 1 Timothy 1.4. Check out this verse in the King James. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. Sadly, that pastor, who's an incredible communicator, eventually left the pastorate, left the faith, traveled with Oprah Winfrey, did shows on the Oprah Winfrey network, and has now fallen headlong into heresy. Another pastor who advocated unhitching from the Old Testament in the past has now become unhinged in his views about biblical sexuality and biblical marriage. Satan still attacks God's word today, and he does so by calling into question its accuracy. Did God really say to call into question its authenticity and its authority? The question, indeed, has God said, is the same tactic Satan uses today. Be on guard. To be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. Number three, demean. The question the serpent asked in the last part of verse 2 was intended to demean God. Join me there in verse 2. He said to the woman, did God actually say, so here's the question, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I wonder if the serpent had a sneer on his face, sarcasm in his voice. Why has God restricted you from the delights of this place? Eve, do you think that's fair? So the first question in the Bible was designed to smuggle in doubt in Eve's soul. The serpent took God's word and twisted them, causing Eve to doubt God's greatness and goodness. And by mocking God, the serpent got her to focus on what was forbidden. Now, before I put up the next verse, take a good look at this. This is, these are the words of Satan. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? Exactly. So look in your Bibles. I hope you have your Bible open. There's Bibles in front of you. Check out this. I'm going back to chapter 2, verse 16. Let's go to what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see how the serpent misquoted and demeaned God's word? He changed the positive permission. Have at it. You can eat all of this, the fruit from all of these trees. He changed that into a pervasive prohibition. And he presented God as saying they couldn't eat from any tree at all. Satan subtly demeans God's character. He's trying to get Eve and us to think that God is harsh. God, you're unreasonable. Why am I going through this hard time? God, it's not fair. How could you do that to me? Friends, keep your guard up. 
Because Satan will tempt you to question the greatness and goodness of God. So to be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. Notice next, distort. We can see how the serpent's crafty ways start to influence Eve. Because now she's dialoguing with the devil. Friends, that's always dangerous. If you dialogue with the devil, you're going to lose. In verses 2 and 3, we see how she distorts what God said. Verses 2 and 3, and the woman said to the serpent, so this is her answer. Now, as I read this, you, you think in your mind, well, what, is this true? What parts of this are true? So here's her answer. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So that's what God said. Let's review here now and compare God's response to what Eve said. I see seven ways Eve distorted what God said. Would you notice first that she omitted, she omitted the phrase, surely eat. What did she say? We may eat. See, God wanted them to eat with great delight to their heart's content. He gave them permission. No, here Eve is downplaying God's gracious permission. It's as if she's saying something like, yeah, I guess we have some food to eat if we get really hungry. Next, she omitted the phrase, every tree of the garden. And she just said, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She characterized God as a killjoy instead of the good God who graciously allowed them to eat as much as they wanted from every tree except one. Oh, notice next, she adopted the serpent's preferred name for God. But God said, instead of calling him Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Once we depersonalize God, it's much easier to do whatever we want. See, if we think of God as far away and uninvolved, it's easy for us to think we can get away with sin. By the way, as soon as God goes looking for the fallen couple after they sin, the compound name Yahweh Elohim is used again. And those two names together show us he is powerful and he is personal. Next, she did not use the correct name. Do you see that? For the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She simply called it the tree. Next, she used the negative word neither, which means no or not, to emphasize what they can't do. Oh, do you see what she added? She added to God's word. She added to the prohibition with this phrase, neither shall you touch it. God never said that. And so here's what Eve's doing. She's magnifying God's strictness, implying that an inadvertent slip would lead to death. This man-made restriction is the first instance of legalism in the Bible. And finally, she omitted, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did she replace it with? 
Oh, a much softer phrase, lest you die, which is a change. She changed a certainty into a vague possibility. Eve weakened the penalty for disobedience, and she diluted certain judgment. Stephen Cole writes this. Notice how Eve is drawn into Satan's line of thinking. Her reply magnifies the strictness of God on the one hand, but softens his threat of judgment on the other. And she is falling into Satan's trap by changing the character of God to more to her liking. She's creating God in her image. See, Eve was already, already beginning to waver. The fall really took place before she ate of the fruit. She had already fallen. Eve diminished, she added to, she subtracted from, and she softened God's word. Well, all of that made it easier to disregard what God had said. Proverbs chapter 30 commands us not to add to the word of God. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. But we're also told to not take away from God's word. Let's go to the, to the book of Revelation, 20, chapter 22, verse 19. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Friends, to be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. Now, number five, denial. After he disguised himself, the serpent raised doubt. He demeaned God. Eve, as a result, expressed a distorted view of God. And now Satan strikes. He unleashes a direct attack on the Almighty. Let's go to verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a very emphatic statement in Hebrew. It reads this way, not you shall surely die. The serpent quoted what God said, and he put the word not in front of it. The serpent is saying, God is not holy. The serpent is saying, sin is not serious. And the serpent is saying, judgment isn't real. And while the serpent started out being sly and subtle, he now strikes quickly, aggressively, directly. This is the first bold lie of Satan. My mind goes to what Jesus says about Satan's character. Consider with me John chapter 8, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Why? For he is a liar and the father of lies. Don't miss this. The first doctrine the serpent denied was God's judgment. He deceived Eve by telling her she will by no means die, or more literally, you will positively not die. He basically told her she can do whatever she wants and there will be no consequences. She can disobey and nothing bad will happen to her. She can have whatever she wants. And there'll be no cost. 
no consequences. The serpent hisses in her ear. Go ahead. Do it. You'll be happy. It's okay. Eat the fruit. You can sin and you can get away with it. This is a direct attack on the power and justice of God. And that shrapnel is seen everywhere in our society today. I came across some insight from a review of a book called The Day America Told the Truth. That book's been out a long time. I think it came out in the 90s. This is a review of that book. And that book was summarizing a study where people were really honest, because a lot of times in surveys, people aren't honest. They were blatantly honest. So this is a review of that book, just two sentences, but listen to this. People want to sin more than they want to do right. They do not want anyone, including God, to tell them that they cannot sin or to condemn them for doing so. Friends, to be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. Notice, finally, number six, desire. To move Eve over the edge, in verse 5, the serpent appealed to her desire by promising to her what she really wanted. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the evil one attacked the goodness of God, implying that he was holding out on Eve and was somehow even jealous of her. And so Satan tries to get us to question the justice of God. God, it's not fair. And to question the love of God. Millions of people today are swayed by Satan to think they can live however they'd like to because there is no judgment. And others... Others believe God doesn't love them, either because of what they've done or what's been done to them. They're living with guilt and shame and think, God doesn't love me. You see, Satan promises pleasure, but he never mentions the pain and the shame and the guilt he wants them to have so that they'll think that God couldn't possibly love them. I hope you come back next weekend because we're going to learn more about that in the next verses. Essentially, the serpent promised the fulfillment of five desires to Eve. Number one, Eve, you'll be omniscient. You'll know. Number two, you'll be omnipotent. You'll be all-powerful. Number three, you will be equal to God. Interestingly, pride is what led to Lucifer being expelled out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14. Listen to his profession of pride. Verses 13 and 14, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. If you want to dive deeper, there's some other references. Fourthly, you'll be morally autonomous, and you can decide for yourself what is right and wrong. Do you think Satan has spread that lie today? 
Hey, you do you, I'll do me. I'll live my truth, you live your truth. Hey, you're all up in that. Who am I to say that isn't right? That's our culture today. And finally, you will be sovereign over your life and no one can tell you what to do. Let me distill it down. Here's Satan's main lie. Sin is not bad and God is not good. In his commentary, Kent Hughes says this must have been intoxicating to Eve. Somehow, the serpent managed to make the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seem as if it were, in fact, the tree of life. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman argues that expressive individualism has permeated our society, leading to all sorts of debauchery, despair, and darkness. In addition, many Christians have subscribed to the religion of moral, therapeutic deism. Friends, when we discredit God's goodness, sin won't seem so sinful. When we deny God's judgment, we'll think we can get away with sin, and we can always justify disobedience if we try hard enough. Disobedience to God's word does not bring greater freedom. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Instead, it brings spiritual death and bondage. Jesus said it this way in John 8, 44. Truly, truly, I say to you. He's like, listen to this. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Friends, to be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. Let's summarize the process of temptation. Disguise, doubt, demean, distort, deny, and desire. We've now been forewarned. Let's consider some practical ways we can be forearmed. Number one, affirm the authority of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, in order to stand on the authority of the Bible, we must read it daily, we must study it, we must memorize it, and we must quote it correctly and be able to discern when it's not. As we've been learning in this series, when God says it, that settles it. Let me take us to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted by Satan, and three different times Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Application. All three quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus was able to quote scripture when he was tempted. Verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word is your number one weapon. And if you're not in a Sunday growth group, a midweek group, or a discipling relationship, can I encourage you to join one? We're encouraging everyone to be involved in a group this year so that all of us can grow in our knowledge and application of the Scriptures. 
Now, before leaving this first step, I encourage you to lock into these two passages. You might want to write down the reference. They're so important to know. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Revelation 12, 10 and 11, I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their, what? Testimony, their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Number two, put on the full armor of God every day. Number three, run, run from temptation. When you're in a tempting situation, don't dialogue with the devil. Run away like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife was hitting on him and inviting him to come into her bed. He bolted. He got out of there. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that God will provide a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. I don't know who said this initially. If I did, I'd give him credit. The battle is usually won or lost in the first five or ten seconds you're tempted. The longer you consider the devil's offer, the more likely it is you will lose. Look for the way of escape and bolt. Number four, gather with God's people every week. We've said this before, but if you unplug, the chances are high, you will unravel. Satan wants to separate you from God's people, just like he tempted Eve when she was alone. You're designed to be in community with other Christians. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you go on YouTube and watch those shows about how lions hunt their prey, if there's a group of animals in a herd, he doesn't go into the herd. What does he do? He looks for the one who's isolated, the one who's by himself or herself. Peter's warning is clear. Watch out. The devil is your enemy, and he's ready to attack any unsuspecting and isolated Christian. Number five, live as light in a dark world. We're called in Philippians 2.15 to live as children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In response to the Grammys this past Sunday night, Michael Brown wrote a post called, Satan is beginning to show his hand more clearly. Here's part of what he said. Quote, this could be good news for those of us who are followers of Jesus. The greater the darkness, the clearer our light is seen. May it shine brightly in front of the whole world. May we shine as lights without shame, without compromise, and without hypocrisy. And don't be surprised in the days ahead, in front of our very eyes, we witness scenes as if taken straight out of the Bible, where in broad daylight, visibly demonized people get set free in Jesus' name, dramatically, gloriously, and in full public view. Number six, repent and receive Christ. The Bible's clear that you are either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of the light. You are either on the wide highway to hell or you're on the narrow path to heaven. There is no middle ground. 
Unfortunately, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, if you don't know Jesus, the Bible says that Satan has blinded, has blinded your mind so to keep you from the gospel of the glory of Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says, if you're not saved by the Savior, your judgment is certain. 1 John 3.8 provides some really good news. Check this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan has been crushed. He's been defeated. But he's now out on bond. But his time is short. Revelation 12, 12, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. If you've been putting off a decision to give your life to Christ, don't put it off any longer. There will be eternal consequences if you do. And if you're ready to believe and receive Jesus right now, I want to lead you in a prayer of salvation. I'll just bow your heads right now and close your eyes, and you could just pray this along silently. When I'm finished with that prayer, I'm going to move into a prayer that I adapted from a prayer I wrote a year ago in response to the Satan Club at a Moline school. You could pray like this. Lord, I admit that I've been living for myself with no rules, with abandon, not even thinking about what you want. And so I own it. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit that I deserve your just judgment, and I repent from how I've been living. I turn to you. Jesus, I believe you died in my place on the cross. You rose again on the third day, and now I receive you into my life. Save me from my sins and from your righteous wrath. I want to be born again, so I place all my trust in you alone. And if there's anything in my life you don't like, please get rid of it. And now let's focus our prayer on the battle we're all in. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the victor, and though Satan is a liar, a thief, and a murderer, he is a vanquished foe. We affirm that Jesus has defeated death, depravity, and the devil through his substitutionary death on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the dead. We come before you today on behalf of our community. We ask for protection for precious students made in your image. May the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ continue to be spread. Stir within parents and grandparents to live for you so they can imprint your word on the hearts of the next generation. May you use this situation to alert parents to the reality of evil so they will introduce their kids to the life-changing message of the gospel. And Lord, for those who are homeschooling their children, give them the wisdom that they need to equip their kids to live on mission for you. Continue to equip children's ministry director, directors, the staff at Youth Hope, other gospel-focused ministries like CEF and Quest for Christ, along with youth pastors in our churches as they seek to evangelize and equip students. We ask that those teachers, staff, and administrators who are followers of you will continue to represent you well in our schools, using their positions as platforms for ministry. We pray against the devil and his demons, recognizing that the real battle in this present darkness is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Remind us to take up the spiritual armor you have provided for us so we can withstand evil by standing firm. Awaken us, Lord, to the need for revival. Mobilize your followers to live on mission for your glory 
and the good of our community and the continents. Oh, would you revive us again that we might rejoice in you. We pray this in the mighty, matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.